Well, it's good to see each of you today. We're glad to be together in the Lord's house and celebrate Palm Sunday together. This is always, it always gets good this time of year as I think about Easter and you think about the joy of the resurrection. We think about all these things this season of the year brings us. And it, it is good news. We're going to read from Hebrews again today for our, um, for our scripture reading. I'm going to ask you, if you have your Bibles with you, if you would turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to begin reading at verse 9, and I'm going to read for you through verse 18. <clears throat> so, Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 9, and... Uh, we'll read through verse 18, actually through the end of the chapter. This is God's word. But we see him who was for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children that God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is God's Word. Let's bow and have a word of prayer together. Father, we thank You that we can pray this morning. We can pray and trust You and know that You're in this day before we ever were. You know everything that's on our hearts. You know as we come to prayer for our service, we pray that Your Holy Spirit would be at work, that He would guide us into all truth, that, Father, You would lead us in paths of righteousness for your namesake, that you would guide our thoughts and you would guide the applications of our hearts. And we pray that uh, all these things, Father, the things of Scripture that we're studying today will become more and more uh, precious to us and special because they're your word. We ask all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You know... Kurt mentioned in his prayer that this has been a hard week. Certainly, as we've looked at the last few weeks, it's been 
it's been a hard time for us as believers. Um, the tornadoes. I called a, I texted a friend of mine uh, who lives near Rolling Fork, uh, Mississippi. And Rolling Fork, Mississippi, if you saw the pictures of that town after the tornado went through, it just looks like, from the satellite pictures, it looks like it just tore everything completely down. There's hardly a structure left in Rolling Fork, Mississippi. I remember when I was in seminary that one of my friends from seminary, several of my friends from seminary, went to preach at Rolling Fork. And uh, one pastor later, after graduation, that little church in Rolling Fork, Mississippi. But what has come to most of us, I think, and hit home, has been the shooting in Nashville that Kurt mentioned. That shooting, uh, again, another mass shooting where multiple individuals were hurt and killed, this time it was in Nashville. And that struck kind of a, a blow for us because it was a PCA church. It was the ministry of a PCA church called Covenant School from Covenant Presbyterian in Green Hills in Nashville. I grew up in, in Nashville and uh, have a lot of connections to that church. Um, my childhood friend who lived down the street from me, Jim Bachman, became the pastor of that church for 23 years. Um, our daughter, Mary, and her husband, Will, were with Reform University Fellowship, RUF. And that the pastor, Chad Scruggs, who is now the current pastor and who lost his daughter as one of those six individuals killed, uh, Chad was with Mary and Will in RUF. It kind of hits home when you think of all of these young people, three nine-year-old children killed, three around 60-year-old adults. This shooting really hit home for us because um, we knew so many people or we knew of so many people who had been associated with that church. Now, when a great tragedy like this takes place, uh, it's hard to process sometimes. It's hard to think about because you know the families or you know of the families and you think what they're going through and you suffer alongside of them. But a lot of people, when they see these mass shootings and they see things like this, it causes them to question. It causes them to question God. It causes them to wonder. Uh, we'll hear a lot of people say, and maybe you've already heard it, where was God last Monday morning at 10 o'clock in the morning? when this all happened. If he, was, if he really cared about human beings, why didn't he stop that shooter? We hear things like this, don't we? I remember when the tsunami hit, what, 10 or 15 years ago and killed 300,000 people. And we thought about the tsunami and some people said, where was God when all of that happened? When those hundreds of thousands of lives were lost. Why should I believe in a God who doesn't care about us? Many people have said. Now, in the book of Hebrews, we know that this letter is a pastoral letter. It's, it's a pastoral letter coming from 
uh, an author who was writing to people who were thinking about leaving the Christian faith. The reason they were thinking about leaving the Christian faith was they were being uh, bombarded by their Jewish family members. And be, they were begged to leave the, the sect, quote unquote, that they belonged to, as their family said, and come back to Judaism. They had suffered persecution. Many of them had lost property. They'd been thrown in prison or they had stood with those who had suffered like that. So there, there are similarities almost in, their, in the things that we're talking about, both Nashville and Rolling Fork, and as we think about what the book of Hebrews was written about. Because people are going to ask, what kind of God is it that exists? What kind of God is, what is God like? Does he care about us? Is he really good? What is the nature of this God that we know about from Scripture? Does he really care about us? Well, I, I think that this is where we've been going in the study of Hebrews because last week in chapter 1, when we saw the author of Hebrews start off, he says, here's what kind of God we have. We have, we have a Savior, Jesus, who is God. In other words, why should you leave the Christian faith when Jesus is God the Son? How could we possibly go away from God and leave it and go back to something else that doesn't really give us the truth of Scripture about who God is? In talking about Jesus here in, in, uh, in Hebrews, it says, it quotes from Psalm 2, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Jesus, the eternal Son of God. You know, how can we go away from Jesus, the eternal Son of God? He was the Word who was there in the beginning. Remember John 1. He was there in the beginning. He made everything. Nothing that was made came into existence any other way than through His creative work. He was the radiance of God the Father's glory, it said in chapter 1, verse 3 of Hebrews. He had the exact imprint of His character and nature. And it says about the Son, God the Father says, Your throne, O God, is forever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. He's called repeatedly, Jesus is repeatedly called God in all of these quotations from the Old Testament that are given to us by the author of Hebrews. If Jesus is the eternal God, the Savior, the King of the world, the coming judge, the one who's going to restore the world. How can we turn away from him? That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. That's what this letter writer, pastoral letter is saying. How can we turn away and run and go away? Because the God who he is, is the Lord Jesus Christ is God the Son. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. Your years will never come to an end. In other words... Jesus is eternal. That's what he keeps quoting over and over and over again. If you have a Bible like mine on the, on the first chapter of Hebrews, so much of it is in this uh, big print because it, it's pointing out that all of these are quotations from the Old Testament, from the Psalms primarily. So we see the beauty of what the author is trying to say. 
Jesus is God. We can't turn away from him. How can you leave the Christian faith since it's so clear that Jesus is God? But it's interesting. When you get to chapter 2, the author's his, his gear shift. And he goes a little bit different direction. He says, now he's going to show you that Jesus is the Son of God. He is human. He is the Son of Man and the true Son of God. So this morning, I want us to look basically at, the, at these at three particular areas of what this author is saying in chapter 2, that Jesus is the Son of Man, that He's the true Son of Man, and then that here's the mission of the Son of Man. So let's look at this first one about what it talks about, about the Son of Man and the Son of God. One of the beautiful things about the Scripture is that the Bible can do what we call a double fulfillment. Uh, if you look at Hebrews chapter 2, it's quoting from Psalm 8. And he says here in verses 6 to 8, he says, Lord, what is the Son of Man that you remember Him? What is humanity, in other words, that you ever consider them? They are born, they live a few years, and they die. Why are you concerned for such individuals as them? You know, we think about human beings like us, and we are pretty frail, aren't we? We notice our frailty. We know our weaknesses. Human beings, uh, we don't look that impressive. We don't look as impressive as the angels. The angels, you know, whenever the angels show up, people are deathly afraid. I mean, they look at the angels, and, and the first thing the angels always have to say is, do not fear, because these people are so afraid when they see one. Well, when you look at human beings, we don't look that scary, do we? Especially you take little babies. You go to the nursery and you look at those little babies and you say, we have to do everything for these. We have to put clothes on them. We have to take the clothes off and give them a bath. We have to feed them. We have to change the diapers. We have to rock them to sleep at night. These little babies are, are special, but they're frail. They're weak and they have to be taken care of. We don't look that impressive. But when he starts talking about the true Son of Man, what does he say? He says, but you, Lord, are exalted. He says, you, Lord, are exalted above all else. Uh, the exalted human beings, well, God exalted human beings when he made us in the image of God. We may not look impressive, but we're made in the moral image and likeness of God. We're made in the moral image and likeness of God. In other words, Francis Schaeffer used to say we're personal, rational, and moral beings. We're persons, we're individuals, we're rational, we're thinking creatures. And we are moral in our motions because even the person that is not a Christian has moral motions. They know certain things are right and certain things are wrong. And they establish a, uh, a, a, a way to behave for themselves. Well, I'm not a Christian, but I wouldn't do that. Well, I'm not a Christian, but I wouldn't say that. I'm not a Christian, but I wouldn't treat someone like this. So even the person that says, I'm not a Christian, I'm not religious, I'm not spiritual, they still all have moral motions. Human beings don't look that impressive, but we're made in the moral image and likeness of God, and therefore we have a higher standing. As 
human beings, we, we, have a particular, uh, we have a particular glory and honor that's given to us. We value human life. We don't, when somebody takes human life, that's a serious thing, and they either lose their life for that or they go to prison for the rest of their days and suffer. But when we come to the true Son of Man, I want you to look at these passages, 6 through 8 of Hebrews chapter 2, again. On the one hand, you see what's man that you even remember him, or the Son of Man that you're concerned about him. You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've appointed him over the works of your hands. Now you remember, God did that. God took Adam and Eve, and he appointed them over all of creation. And he said, you name them. And Adam gave them names. And he said, you take care of them. You have dominion over them. You can kill these animals and eat them later on. You know, you're to take care of the animals. You're to take care of the created world. We had a role to fill. Now, if you look at, if you go beyond it and you say, God even gave, but God has given a greater fulfillment to the true Son of Man. Because the true Son of Man is one that has, he, he came to be made lower than the angels, but to take on death so that he could die in our place. We see the true Son of Man that came crowned with glory and honor, and He's been honored as our Redeemer. We see the true Son of Man who's been appointed over the works of His hands, and God says He's not only a prophet, but He's a priest, and He's the King of all of creation. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to give glory to God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. You see... There's a beauty here about Jesus. He's not just a son of man, but he's the son of man. He's the fulfillment of it all. He's the completion of it all. What Adam did in his flesh, and he fell into sin and didn't keep God's ways, the new Adam, the second Adam, Jesus Christ comes, and what he does is he fulfills everything that Adam failed at. He keeps the law. He obeys God completely. He comes and he follows. He gives an obedient life. Then he offers up his perfect sinless life on the cross to die for us. He's the true son of man who even is glorified now and at the right hand of God the Father. Now, when we talk about a son of man versus the son of man, it kind of reminds us of what we do in marketing today. You know, there's this interesting trend in marketing today that if you're trying to market a particular product, your name for that product really matters. And some people have gone to all kinds of extents to create a name for their product. But then the pendulum spits, swings and we come back to very simple names. And some companies are even adopting a new strategy the simple strategy of saying that their product is the perfect standout in the whole market. For instance, Mark, the Mark Jacobs company has what they call the, the tote bag, as if it were the only one. We're all familiar with perhaps a company for skincare products that calls itself the body shop. And then there's the clothing company that we know as 
the gap. You know, you, you see how these companies have picked names that just say, we're the ultimate, we're the completion, we're the fulfillment of this part of the market. Well, here in Hebrews, we're told to look beyond humanity to the perfect Son of God and the perfect Son of Man. He's Son of Man because he's, his focus is always the focus of God. God was focused on his divine Son, on his true and perfect Son. He said, my Son is higher than the angels, higher in glory, higher in standing. He had a greater name. He has a greater office. He has a greater work than the angels have. He's firstborn of creation. He's the creator of the whole world. He's the one who made purification for all of our sins. That's what Hebrews 1 said. As far as the God-man is concerned, he was made lower than the angels, but for the point of suffering death so that he could be glorified and honored. So it's almost like humiliation, you know, humbleness, exaltation comes on its, on its heels. Humiliation, then exaltation. Christ comes as the humble son of man. He's born in an inauspicious place. He grows up in a little town. He has a ministry later, and he dies the death that no one would want to die. And yet he is glorified and honored in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. He's the one who is exalted higher than ever. He's over all the works of God's hand. He is indeed um, the Son of Man, the completion of it all. You see, we have a Savior. We have a Savior in Jesus. He's the only one who could save us because we figured out we can't save ourselves. We can't be good enough. We can't erase the past. We can't undo things that we've done. We can't undo thoughts that we've had. We can't undo words that we've spoken. We can't save ourselves. Only God can save us. So we have a Savior who is the Son of Man and the Son of God who was brought into the world to pay for our sin. You know, Romans, Romans 5.19 says, For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. In Hebrews 1, we have this Savior who's God. In Hebrews 2, we have this Savior who's the true Son of Man. And we need to talk about what His mission was. Because in chapter 2, a lot of it is on the mission of Jesus, the mission of Jesus as the true Son of Man, the true Son of God, and as the true High Priest who came from heaven for us. Now today is Palm Sunday, and when we think about Palm Sunday, we think about the picture in our mind is always Jesus, you know, coming into Jerusalem, coming down through the Kidron Valley, and then being led up into the city, and of course it was a walled city, so the, those big high walls, the gates open, 
the streets lined with pilgrims from all over the world. And then they saw Jesus coming in this glorious, you know, he's, here's the prophet from Nazareth and they see him and all of a sudden they take their palm branches and they throw them down in front of him and Jesus comes in in triumph. But even though he's the, the king, even though he's high and list, lifted up, he comes riding on a humble donkey, doesn't he? So there's the humility of the God-man as he comes into the world, as he comes into the city. He comes humbly on the back of a donkey, yet the crowds are exalting him, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, what a great tribute they were bringing to him. The true Son of David, they called him to come to bring peace and salvation to us. But you know what week that was. That was the last week of Jesus' life. He comes in humility and in weakness because he's going to be crucified in humility and weakness. But he's going to triumph as the Son of God at the end at the resurrection. So here's this exalted one, the exalted Son of God who comes to save His people of their sins. And you see, this is what Jesus' mission was all about. His mission was to save for Himself out of all of lost humanity a people that belonged to Himself, a people that He would redeem for God, a people that would be His own people that He could gather in. He says, you know, I'm like the the mother hen who comes to gather her chicks. He says, the mother hen says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to be like that mother hen who gathers you all under my wings. Because you see, Jesus came as the great Savior, the great King, the great Messiah to come and to bring His people to faith, to bring His people into His family. Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save that which is lost because he came to save his own people from their sins. We, we use the word elect. Uh, the scripture uses that word. That's why we use it. It's that God gathering his own people, his own selected people in from all of lost humanity to save them and to give them life and to give them eternal life. We think about Ephesians where it says, chosen in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. We think of Hebrews 2 verse 10 that says his mission was to bring in bringing many sons to glory. We, we know that sadly some will never believe. Some will never trust Jesus as their Savior. Some will turn their backs on everything that God has done for them and walk away. You think of the people that were at the grave that were even guarding the grave, the Roman soldiers. They saw the angels come down. They saw the tomb opened. They walked away and refused to believe. In John 3, 36, it says, whoever believes in him has eternal life. Whoever doesn't believe doesn't have eternal life, but the wrath of God abides on them. And in Hebrews 2, 12 and 13, Jesus says, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. I will sing your praise. And then he says, I and the children whom God has given to me. In other words, here's this beautiful picture of God coming to earth as the true Son of Man and the true Son of God 
to gather to himself a people from all of the from all of humanity who would belong to him who would belong to him by faith in Jesus Christ the mission of Jesus the God man was to go to that cross to die and to pay the penalty for our sin to purchase for himself this people from all of humanity so that they would belong to him and so that he would call them his brothers and sisters he says this is what I'm doing. I'm coming to bring to myself a group of people. And I'm not ashamed to call them my brothers and sisters. Isn't that the beautiful thing? That the God who came from heaven, the one who was born in the manger, the one who went to the cross for us, the one who's exalted high into the heavens, the one who sits at the right hand of God the Father, is not ashamed to call you and me his brothers and sisters. He's not ashamed to welcome us into the family. He's not ashamed to pray for us. He's not ashamed to pray like he did for Peter. He said, tell Peter, I've prayed for him. When he comes back, tell him I've prayed for him. You see, Jesus is our greater brother. He is the one who loves us. Part of his mission was to come for his people, but he came for us because he cared about us, because he wanted to make us family. He wanted to bring us in. He that has the Son has life. He wanted us to be welcomed into the family so that we could have eternal life with him forever. He destroyed the three enemies that we have. You know, we talk about what the enemies that the Christian has. The enemy has sin and death and the devil. We think about uh, what Jesus did about these enemies. He destroyed the hold that sin has over us. When anybody becomes an, a person who puts his faith and trust in Christ, what does it say? He's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It's become new because God the Holy Spirit now lives in us. And the hold that sin had over us is broken. That we don't have to be slaves to sin anymore that we can be instead give our lives to be slaves of righteousness. We can follow the right things that God has called us to do. We're no longer slaves to the old nature. Now we can give ourselves to the new nature. And we have this power of the Holy Spirit to overcome that sin. And since Jesus has become our substitute, the penalty for our sin, which is death, was paid. So death doesn't have to frighten us anymore. Sin doesn't have a hold over us, and death doesn't have to frighten us. We don't have to be afraid, because death is just the door that opens the way to heaven for us. You know, we're going to go be with the Lord forever, and as we were talking about this morning before the service began, we're going to have eternity to rejoice in the things of the Lord. We're going to have eternity to visit with one another. You know, here in this place, we're, we're always going somewhere. We're always rushing. We've always got to be somewhere else. You know, we, we leave our homes. We come to Sunday school. We come to church. We leave. We go home. We eat lunch. We get up Monday morning. Some of us have jobs that we have to go to. We have families we take care of. We're always going somewhere and doing something. But what, is this, what does the future look like? The future for us looks beautiful in that sense is we're never going to be rushed again because we can always be in 
that moment where we have time for each other, our brothers and sisters. We have time for worship. We have time to be with the Lord and with each other and to do those things that he will appoint for us to do in heaven for eternity. New heavens and new earth. What that's, what's that going to be like? I mean, that's going to be great. Death is not frightening to us anymore because we're not going to be afraid of something that's already been defeated. And then the devil's accusations won't work anymore. You know, Satan is the great accuser. What he does is he accuses, he puts us before, he says, God, how can you love these people? Look what they've done. Look how they've let you down. Look how they've backtracked. Look how Peter denied you. Look how David walked away. Look at these people. You can't have anything to do with them. But what's Jesus is our high priest at the right hand of the Father is interceding for us and he's saying to the accuser, you have no right to accuse them because their sins have been paid for. I've paid for every single one and you have no accusation against them. In fact, they have my righteousness. My righteousness has been credited to their account so that when God the Father looks at all of us who have faith in Jesus, he sees that there is just the perfect righteousness of Jesus. He doesn't see our sin. The beauty of how sin and death and the devil have been defeated by the work of Christ, his mission was to defeat the devil, to destroy his hold over us, to defeat sin, and to give us eternal life. And you know what else the mission of our son, true Son of Man is? It's to be our high priest. And isn't Jesus the high priest we want? Because how is he described? Jesus is the merciful and faithful high priest. He's merciful. You know, isn't that the kind of high priest we want? If, uh, if, if all of us lived not in Fuquay or Apex or Holly Springs, if we lived in Rolling Fork, Mississippi, and let's just say that the tornado has come through and it's destroyed everything. It's destroyed our home. It's crunched our car up into a twisted piece of metal. The plant where we worked is gone, so we have no job. We have no money because we have no job and we've spent whatever we have. We have no insurance, perhaps, because maybe we lost our job before and there's no insurance on our house. We couldn't pay it anymore. And if you were part of that community and you had an interview one day with somebody from the Red Cross or from FEMA, what kind of person would you want interviewing you? Would you want a political appointee who had never worked but in uh, a high-level job? Would you want a political appointee who came from a rich family who had never known any kind of want and had always had everything he or she had ever wanted? Would you want that kind of person to be sitting across the table from you in Rolling Fork, Mississippi? No. What you would want, would, you would want a person that had gone through hardship like you. You would want somebody that could understand your pain and suffering. You would want somebody maybe who had lost, who had been like you, who had lost everything in a tornado or 
a hurricane or somebody who had lost everything because their families ran off and left them when they were young. You see, you would want somebody that had compassion, somebody that was a co-sufferer like you are, who had suffered in a way like you had suffered. You don't want somebody that's never known any suffering at all to be sitting across the table from you because they can't identify with you or your plight. The author of Hebrews says that our high priest is merciful because he understands what suffering is like. Did you notice where it said he had been made perfect or complete through suffering? Jesus himself had suffered. He suffered far more than you and I can understand. And he's the merciful and faithful high priest. What stands out about our high priest? Well, it says in verse 18, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And it says we have a high priest in chapter 4 who sympathizes with our weaknesses. We started this morning talking about the people in Nashville. Well, the people in Nashville at Covenant School and Covenant Church who are believers have a high priest. They have a high priest who understands, who sympathizes with them in their loss. On the cross, Jesus lost everything too. On the cross, Jesus lost his, the most important thing he lost was his relationship with his father, his fellowship with his father. Because, you know, he became sin for us. And when he became sin for us, God the Father withdrew from Jesus. To the point that Jesus, having never known that, said, My God, my God, how can you forsake? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Well, he knew because he'd become sin for us. So Jesus has lost everything. He lost everything on the cross for us. We have a high priest. Those people in Nashville have a high priest. People who are believers in Rolling Fort have a high priest who knows their suffering. He's a merciful and faithful high priest. Because he suffered the ultimate loss, he cares for us so much that one day he's going to wipe away all of our tears, our crying, and our pain. One day he will come and make a whole world new where there's only righteousness and peace. I was reading Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 3 this week, and this is what he said. Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the time of the restoration of all things. We have a great high priest who's coming, and one day he's going to restore all things. This is our faithful and righteous, merciful high priest. Let's bow and pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, the great one who loved us, who came from heaven for us, who died to give us eternal life, who died to gather us together into your family, to call us by his name and your name, and to give us peace and mercy in the spite of turmoil and trouble. We thank you that we can come this morning and we pray for all those who are suffering. We pray that today they may know that peace and that joy 
and that mercy that Jesus brings as our great high priest. And we pray in his name. Amen.